Well, today we will be covering the five solas of the Reformation. It was October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther posted 95 theses, 95 points of doctrine and belief that he observed that was going on wrong in his church, in his Roman Catholic Church, what going on all around him, both points of theology and points of morality. He had these 95 what are called theses or points of contention he had with the Roman Catholic Church. It was not the first time that someone noticed these problems, but it was a time when what he did became a spark that caused a flame, a wildfire to spread throughout Europe and from there throughout the world, in many places in the world, because they sent missionaries to go all around. Martin Luther was joined in a few years later by John Calvin, by Ulrich Zwingli, and also by John Knox and many others. Some of these names you may have heard before, others you may not have heard. From these men came, of course, from Martin Luther, the Lutheran Church. From Calvin and Knox and others came the Reformed Churches, those churches that have as their name, in their name, Reformed Churches come from them. The Presbyterians come from John Knox. He was in England first, and then he went to Scotland, and he converted Scotland from being Catholic to being Presbyterian. And that is the most common denomination that we hear of these days in our area, the Presbyterians from John Knox. He converted the Scots people into becoming Reformed, and specifically in that denomination. Reformed Baptists, they also they come out of England, out of the Church of England that was reforming itself from Catholicism, but not completely. They kept some things that were Catholic, but they adopted some things that were a part of the Reformation. They technically are not known as Protestants because they did not protest in the way that Luther and Calvin and Knox did, yet they are a part of uh, the Reformed movement in a sense in that they sought to reform the church in England. And from them come the Anglicans, or in the United States, the Episcopalians. Well, during that time, in the 1500s and early 1600s, the Reformed Baptists, at that point, they were called Particular Baptists, particular because they believed that God specially chose the elect for salvation. That's why they were known as Particular Baptists, and that Jesus' death was particularly, specially intended to save the elect. Not every person, but the elect. Well, today we call them Reformed Baptists. They came out of that movement in England and spread to other places. We also know of the Pilgrims and the Puritans. The Pilgrims and the Puritans had their origin as well in that area, and then they spread in other parts of Europe and then came to America, what we call the United States of America in the 1500s and the 1600s. The pilgrims first came, colonized this area, and then the Puritans after them. The pilgrims were more separatists. The Puritans thought that they could reform the church, the corrupt church structure from within. They soon found, the Puritans did, that they could not do so, and that those that they were trying to reform jettisoned them and threw them out of the pulpit. And so the Puritans had to take the same path as, uh, or the Puritans had to take the same path as the pilgrims did and migrate to other lands where they would have the freedom to conduct their faith as they wished. Now, many good things have come out of this Reformation 500 years ago. Many good things have come out of them. Not all of these churches are perfect churches. Of course, no church. In a, in a sense, is perfect according to what the Bible expects of the church to be. But they were tremendous, tremendous improvements on the Roman Catholic Church. And the dominance of the theology and practices of the Roman Catholic Church that developed over time in the medieval period and even in their day, 500 years ago, there was much corruption. That corruption, many, in many ways, remains today. In many ways, the corruptions of the Roman Catholic Church remain today. There are some ways in which they have modified themselves, but in other ways, they have not modified themselves. And so it is still a very severe 
severe problem and a compromise of the gospel, and it, in fact, a contradiction of the gospel. One cannot hold to Roman Catholic doctrine and be saved. One might, in spite of it, be saved, but one cannot, because of it, be saved. Because they teach things in relation to the five solas that contradict the five solas of the Reformation and therefore undermine the Bible, undermine Christ, undermine the gospel of Christ and the way of salvation. They continue to date to undermine the gospel of Christ. Now, why is it necessary to address it at this time? Well, we should celebrate and, and be reminded that 500 years have transpired since we have enjoyed a, a, a better and more free access to the truth of the gospel. But we also need to be reminded that there are many, many prominent pastors, popular pastors, who do not understand and even reject the Reformation. They don't understand, they don't agree with it, and they in fact reject the Reformation. I may mention a few names. One name is Rick Warren. Rick Warren, popular pastor and Southern Baptist preacher in California. He has had a good relationship with Catholics over the years. In fact, they consider he, he has had a good and close relationship with a Roman Catholic bishop, Kevin Van. A Roman Catholic bishop, Kevin Van. And together, they say things like this. They say that um, they share not only our common love for the Lord, but also our love for the church, fellowship, and praying together. In various meetings, they share a common love for the Lord, they say. Our love for the church, that is, we're one church, the Catholics and Rick Warren are one church, they fellowship together as true believers, and they pray together as true believers. This is Rick Warren. This has happened over several years, and this is a very prominent example of this severe problem. But Rick Warren is not the only one. Another example is Tim Keller. Tim Keller, a popular preacher of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York. He is known as a Reformed theologian, however, he has embraced Catholicism. He considers them brothers in Christ. He promotes the social gospel or the social justice gospel, which is basically a Christian form of Marxism and communism. He promotes that. He believes and promotes Roman Catholic mysticism, Roman Catholic prayer and meditation and mysticism in his own church. He has classes along those lines. Tim Keller is another major problem and, and pastor promoting Catholicism. Another one is John Piper. John Piper, DesiringGod.org and various other books and ministries, conferences. In 2011, John Piper taught Roman Catholic mysticism. It's called uh, Lectico Divina Life on his website. But after a backlash, he removed it, and he says that this was not probably a good thing that he did to put it up there. However, he really believes it. He really believes it because later, this happened in late 2011, but later in 2012, he along, um, he, along with um, uh, Beth, um, uh, Beth Moore, they promote this prayerful and meditative Catholic mysticism together in a conference in the following year. And he is on record for saying the following about Roman Catholics, their priests, and their teachers. He calls them teachers of the church. He calls them teachers of the church. The church. So, yes, we have disagreements here or there with Catholics, but basically we're all teachers of the church, and we just are trying to figure out all these things together. Iron sharpens iron, so we'll sharpen each other. Then, last month, in September 2017, he wrote an article on his website, Does God Really Save Us by Faith Alone? 
Does God really save us by faith alone? It's a mixed article with mixed terminology. There are, are some terms that are biblical and orthodox, but then other f- words and phrases that are unorthodox and unbiblical. And when you read it at first sight, it's confusing. It's an enigma what he's actually saying. But if you know the history of John Piper, and if you know exactly that in his mind he doesn't really believe it, you know what he's drawing, uh, what conclusion he's drawing. In fact, the conclusion that many have come to in reading this article is that John Piper believes we are justified by faith, but we are finally saved by works. Finally saved by works. Well, that is Catholic teaching. That is Arminian teaching. A a consistent Arminian believes that you are saved or justified by faith, and then you keep up your salvation by works, otherwise you can lose your salvation. Well, that's what Catholics teach, that you can lose your salvation. And many Arminian churches, such as Methodist churches, Nazarene churches, Pentecostal, Charismatic churches, believe in the loss of salvation because they're not maintaining their justification by their works. He does not necessarily mean it in the orthodox sense that works are the fruit of true faith, but he, he uses the term fruit, but what he means by fruit is works, <coughs> that you maintain your salvation by your works. That is John Piper. And then finally, we have the example of Russell Moore. Russell Moore, he is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He has been noted to go giddy whenever he's talking about the Pope and even meeting the Pope, as well Barack Hussein Obama whenever he was president. He was very happy to be in that company. And he, on the 31st, just a few days ago, on October 31st, in the morning, 7.43 in the morning, he tweeted the following. This is three bobbleheads, three bobbleheads. The Pope, as you're looking at it, on the left, the current Pope on the left, he is in the middle, and Martin Luther is on the right. He is in the middle of these two. And he says, he himself tweeted this, a uniter, not a divider. A uniter, not a divider. Therefore, these doctrines that we are about to study are not irrelevant. They are very uncommon these days. Because if those people who represent major movements today reject these doctrines, what do you think the people who are following them reject? They also reject these doctrines. That's why we, we must recover the purposes of the Reformation to recover the true gospel itself, which are encapsulated, which are summarized in what we call the five solas of the Reformation. Now, we do not know at what point this expression originated and how these five were brought together. It was sometime after the initial Reformation. However, these doctrines, these ideas, are founded on the Bible, and they can be found all over the Bible, and they are found in the literature of these reformers. It does not take long to read John Calvin or any of the other reformers and see that they are talking about things in this way, in terms of the five solas. The first, uh, or let me explain also, what does sola mean? Sola, we get the word solitude from that. In the original Latin, it means alone or only. Alone or only. So there are five of them. The first one is known as sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. With this doctrine, it is the belief that scripture is uh, the highest authority and the final authority. That is, whenever anybody says anything, Whenever anybody suggests anything, whenever, any, whenever anybody prints anything, promotes anything, says we should do this, we should practice this ritual, we should do this practice, we should pr- promote this method of evangelism or church or worship, whenever anybody says anything, it must match with Scripture because if it contradicts with Scripture, 
then it should be rejected. There is absolutely no room for human traditions. Scripture alone and all human traditions must be jettisoned. Isaiah 8.20 To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. If they don't speak according to the word of God, they have no dawn. They have no light. It has to match what the Bible says. Proverbs 28.9 He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. We can't even pray a prayer to God that contradicts the word of God for it to be acceptable to God. For it to be acceptable, our prayer has to conform. The content of our prayer has to conform and be consistent and harmonize with whatever is in Scripture. If it is not, then it is an abomination to God. And now, if our prayers don't suffice, uh, however we want to pray, don't suffice, how could we imagine that we can invent a method, a practice, a ritual, some kind of tradition that undermines the Bible? We can't do that because we can't even pray and do that. James tells us, James tells us in James 4, 13, we can't even speak and contradict the Bible. James 4, 13, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin." He tells us that we can't even say, hey, let's go today or tomorrow to that city and make a profit. Let's go over there and do that. You can't even say that unless you say, if the Lord wills. And how will you know if the Lord wills? Well, if you are prayerfully seeking Him according to His Word, then you can say that, that this is the right thing for us to do. But if you're not prayerfully seeking the Lord's will from His Word, then you can't even say, we shall live and do this or that. You can't do that. So how can anybody imagine that any human idea, any human tradition, any human practice, method, invention, wisdom, can sub supplant the Bible? Nothing can supplant and subvert Scripture. It has to be Scripture alone. Jesus believed this. Jesus believed this. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. He said, Do not think, Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught here that not the smallest letter or stroke from the law will pass away until heaven and earth pass away, and... Whoever annuls whatever's in the Bible, he will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He annuls them and he teaches others he'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And who was notorious in Jesus' generation for doing that? The scribes and the Pharisees. He says, you better not be like the scribes and the Pharisees who have human traditions that they invent. And they invent them ostensibly saying, oh, no, no, it's not going to contradict the Bible. Or they might say, yeah, it does contradict it, but you don't need to obey that part of the Bible. They do one or the other. And he says, our righteousness has to surpass theirs. We cannot practice what they practice. Otherwise, we shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. A prime example of this 
and Jesus is confronting the scribes and the Pharisees is Matthew 15. Matthew 15, verses 1 to 20. They come and ask him about a tradition that Jesus does not practice. A tradition of the elders that they have invented, but Jesus does not practice it. And then Jesus confronts them. Verse 3, And he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. They, trans- they have a human tradition that they make to contradict the Bible. And God said, Honor father and mother, and if you don't honor father and mother, you speak evil of them, you ought to be put to death for that. But what did they do? Verse 5. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother, and thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. They don't they are told not to honor father and mother with their means, with whatever means they have, material means to help them in their old age. Presumably this is the context. Instead of helping father or mother, they say, no, you just take those resources, take those funds, take those monies, and just give them to God as a gift to God, and you'll be just fine. You don't have to honor them in their old age. Don't honor them. He says that this is an invalidation of the Word of God. You have just constructed something, fabricated a means of getting money yourself and dishonoring your parents, thereby you contradict the Bible. And he calls them in verse 7, You hypocrites! They worship in vain. They draw near with their lips, but their hearts are far away from them. And verse 14, Jesus says, Let them alone! They are blind guides of the blind, and if a blind man fa- uh, guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Do we see how seriously Jesus takes it? He says that if you construct a human tradition that contradicts the Bible, you are blind and you make other people blind, and you deserve to be left alone and fall into the pit, signifying the pit of hell. That's where you deserve to go for undermining the Bible. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says that we should not exceed what is written. Not exceed what is written. Which reminds us of Deuteronomy 4, 2 and 12, 32. That we should not add to the Word of God or take away from it. Not add to the Word of God or take away from it. Revelation 22. Revelation 22, 18 says the same. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. There are terrifying plagues and condemnations in the book of Revelation. Nobody wants that. Nobody should want that. But if anyone adds or subtracts from the Bible, that's the kind of judgment he deserves. Therefore, the doctrine of Scripture alone is a biblical doctrine. Jesus taught it. The apostles and the prophets taught it. We should believe it. Scripture alone. Don't ever allow any book, any philosophy, any theology, any person to erect anything in your mind as an assumption And then go to the Bible to seek a way to make it fit the Bible. Don't ever do that. When when that happens, we are contradicting the Bible. We don't believe in Scripture alone. And we deserve to go to hell. The second doctrine, sola gratia. Sola gratia, grace alone. Grace alone means God's effective grace is given to His elect. God's effective grace is given as a gift to His elect. This does not mean prevenient grace that is given to every person. Prevenient grace means that God gives an equal amount or a sufficient amount of grace to every individual in the world 
and it's just up to the individual to use his will, his free will and good will, to act on this grace that he has been endowed with, and then he saves himself from his sins. So God does his part by giving everybody some equal grace, and then they do their part by exerting their will, making a choice, their free choice, their free will and good will to cooperate with that grace and then be saved from their sins. That, that is not what grace alone means. Grace alone does not mean that. It means that it originates with God and it is an effective grace that He gives that to definitely accomplish redemption in His elect and when he does so, he grants them faith and repentance. He grants them the gifts of faith and repentance by grace. And only, only to the elect. It says in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15 and verse 11, when a dispute arose about this very issue of grace and faith and works, it says in 1511, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. We believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also are. And then, verse 7, verse 7, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God made a choice, and that choice is to give grace, verse 11, to give grace among the Gentiles for them to hear the word and believe. So when God chose to manifest His grace among the Gentiles, it produced them hearing the word and believing the word. Not everybody believed it. Some of them believed it. And that's because of grace towards His elect. Acts 18.27. Acts 18.27. This is speaking of Apollos. And when he preached the word, it says, 18.27, he and others, when they were preaching... And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he gr helped greatly those who had believed through grace. Notice there. They didn't believe just based on their free will. They believed because they had this grace. Everybody in the, that region did not believe. But those who did believe, believed because grace was endowed to them. They were gifted with grace. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 and verse 5. Romans 11, 5. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. He says that, the reason that there is a remnant, a few people who believe, why is it? Because it's according to God's gracious choice. God's choice that they believed, and it happened by grace. God's gracious choice, verse 6. And because it's by God's grace, it's not by works, human works. It does not originate from human works. Human works is not the cause it is God's grace that is the cause and brings about a remnant of true believers. Romans 3. Romans 3 and verse 24. Romans 3, 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We are justified as a gift by His grace. The cause of our justification is the grace of God. However, we know everyone is not saved that way. And why? Because that gift of grace has not been given to everyone to be saved by believing and repenting of their sins. And this happens by believing in Christ. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. 
Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It says very clearly in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. In Romans 3.27 it says that if it is... Uh, by faith, then it is not by works. And if it is by faith, there is no room to boast. Now, if it does happen by faith and not works so that we can't boast, how does one obtain that faith? Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It was the gracious gift of God to give us grace, to give us faith, to give us salvation in Christ. All of it. Now, some debate has happened over the years uh, because the Arminian position, which is also like the Catholic position, they have contended that the word that in verse 8 and that not of yourselves is of a gender that does not match faith. So faith could not be what Paul is saying is a gift. Well, for that matter, grace does not match it either. The neuter gender of that actually is neuter because he's talking about everything. He's talking about grace, he's talking about faith, and he's talking about salvation. He's saying everything that has to do with our redemption, that is not of ourselves. That's why he says that. He doesn't say that because he's talking about one specific thing. He's talking about the whole thing. And he lumps it together and he says it's all not of ourselves. All of it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And then, once we are in Christ Jesus, verse 10, we are created for good works. True faith produces true fruit. And that, that's what he means by good works here. Good works in Ephesians 2.10 equals the fruit of the Holy Spirit, produced by true faith. 2 Timothy 1.9, Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From all eternity, before the foundation of the world, God called us, God purposed to, to perform this grace upon us, to grant us this grace, to give it to us as a gift in Christ. And this is what saved us. There is no mention whatsoever of human effort, of free will, of our own faith, our own repentance, nothing. Nothing absolutely in this verse. Because those things are not the cause. Those things are the fruit of of God's calling, are the fruit of His purpose, are the fruit of God's grace towards us, specifically His people. Therefore, God's effective grace showered upon, gifted upon, His elect only. That's what's meant by grace alone. The next one is sola fide. Sola fide means faith alone. Faith alone. It's, it's at this point that some have contended. It's actually a Catholic argument which John Piper uses in his article of September 2017. And that is, the Bible never says alone. It doesn't ever say faith alone. It doesn't use the phrase faith alone. It just says faith. We are justified by faith. As though that settles the argument. It reminds me of Jehovah's Witnesses that say... The Bible does not use the word Trinity. Therefore, we should not use the word Trinity and we should not even believe in the Trinity because the concept is not in the Bible. Well, actually, the concept of faith alone is in the Bible and it's all over the Bible. The concept of faith alone 
is in the Bible, and it is a faith that's given as a gift to his elect only. It does not depend, our salvation does not depend on any human works, because the Bible describes us as being dark, as being dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot, as a dead being, do anything that is responsive. We cannot respond to anything until God makes us alive, gives us that, by making us alive, giving us His grace, and thereby granting faith and repentance in Christ, turning away from sins and believing in the death of Christ for our redemption. That's what faith alone means. An example. A lengthy example is Romans chapter 4 of how the Bible, in, in fact, does mean that we are saved by faith alone. Even though Romans 4 does not say faith alone, it does speak of it in contrast to works. So what else could the Apostle Paul be meaning except faith alone? If he's excluding all works, then he's meaning it's only by faith. And he's assuming that faith is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God, and that is the means by which we are saved. Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Paul is clearly teaching us that it's either faith or works. It does not help with those who are contentious on this. It does not help for them to say, well, when a human exercises faith, the Bible does not consider that a work. Thereby putting faith in a different category than work. A human faith effort and a human work effort they put into separate categories and they say, we as humans, we can exercise faith, but God just doesn't consider that a work. No, that's not what the apostle means here. What the apostle means is that anything that a human does is a work, is a human work, and cannot be presented to God. It cannot be presented to God. And if it could be presented to God, it would be presented as a wage, as what is due. But there's nothing to do, and there's nothing to boast about. There's nothing to be, feel good about that I worked hard all day long and I will get my paycheck, my wage at the end of the day. You cannot feel good and you cannot rejoice and revel in the fact that you worked hard all day and you got your paycheck at the end of the day. That's not the way salvation works. It's not what is due. It is completely and fully a gift of faith that is exercised, that Abraham exercised, thereby he was counted or reckoned righteous. That is the way of salvation. It's very clear that the apostle excludes any kind of human work. Another passage for this is Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, passages that clearly announce to us that Faith is a gift of God to His elect. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Philippians 1, 29. He says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. He says of the Philippians, the Philippian church, the believers there, that it was granted... For Christ's sake, so that we might belong to Christ, be His body. For Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Here, the Apostle says, God grants, implying a gift, undeserved. God grants us the ability to believe in Him, in Christ. 
not only to believe in Christ, God grants us the gift of suffering. There are two things that God grants here, to believe and to suffer. There is no unbeliever who suffers for the name of Christ in a true sense. Only believers, true believers, suffer for the name of Christ. Just as only true believers suffer for the name of Christ as a gift of God, only true believers believe in Christ. These two are granted by God. We read the verse earlier, Acts 15 and verse 7. We'll read again in reference to faith being a gift. It says in Acts 15, verse 7, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. The choice that God made was that Gentiles should hear and believe. Not just hear, but hear and believe. Both are the objects of God's choice. To hear and to believe. We note that in 1511, Acts 1511, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. He uses here, or explains here, the cause of God's choice. Just as Romans 11, 5 and 6 says, there is a remnant today because of God's gracious choice. If there is a remnant, if there are a few believers, they are there because God has chosen them by grace to believe. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If we have it, then it must be received as a gift of God. If it's a gift of God, it's not our work. It did not originate in us. It was not manufactured within us. It was exercised by us, but it was exercised as a gift from heaven, a gift from God that He produced in us. James 1.17 Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He says that the gift came down from above. Every good thing. How could it be, therefore, that our free will, a residual goodness in our will, produced our salvation? Even when proponents of free will say so, they say, oh, well, it's just a small amount of goodness that we have and freedom that we have that we exercised and accomplished redemption. God does 99% of it, and we just add a little bit to it. We just choose to believe. Well, actually... If it has to do with his salvation, how could that 1% change the course of his eternity and be considered merely 1%? Actually, by the effect of what he's saying, the 1% is actually 99% because it changed the course of his eternal destiny. No, no eternal destruction, but eternal life. So, the Bible cannot, and it does not, leave room for unbelievers or people generally having any kind of goodness and faith that they exercise to bring about their redemption. It has to be a gift of faith from God. Lastly, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. We actually may read through verse 5 to show a distinction. Verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the, Lord, the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one, and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. In verse 2, we have the evil people. And in verse 3, the evil one, the devil. The evil people and the devil, what do they lack? Verse 2 says, not all have faith. 
Everyone has not been given an equal measure of grace and therefore equal measure of the ability to have faith in Christ. They haven't been given that. In fact, notice verse 1, he says, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. Because of prayer coupled with the will of God, the word of God spread and it was glorified with them with the Thessalonians. And then verse 3, the Thessalonians, not their opponents, will be strengthened and protected. The Thessalonians will be strengthened and protected. And verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. They will persevere until the end, but not the other people. Verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. That's a prayer for further sustenance. May God direct your hearts. The heart that was dead, the heart that was cold and stony, the heart that was uncircumcised and closed is opened, is circumcised, is is, uh, tenderized, softened in order for them to love God and be steadfast in Christ. We love because He first loved us. That's the same thing here. They love God because God first directed their hearts and he's praying that God continues to direct their heart until the end. Steadfastly until the end. The next sola is solus Christus. That is Christ alone. Only the cross of Christ is the means of our salvation. He only is our Lord and Savior. There is no salvation in anyone else. You will notice that if people compromise the doctrines that we have just mentioned, they will usually also compromise this doctrine and say that there are other ways of salvation or that they will say everybody is saved. Universalism, every person and even demons and the devil, everyone will be saved. No matter how wicked they were, Stalin and Hitler and anybody else, will go. everybody else will go to heaven no matter how evil they were. That's universalism. But then also if they minimize the previous doctrines, they will show it here as well by saying that, you know, God did send Christ to die in this world, but whether people know him or not, as long as they are faithful in their own religion, God will save them by Christ, whether they know him or not. That is the belief of Billy Graham. Billy Graham believes That people don't need to hear of Christ to be saved in Christ. Because what God did in Christ will be applied to them as long as they are faithful in their own religions. They do the best they can and God makes up the difference in Christ. This is also what Mormons say. Mormons say we are saved by grace after all we have done. We are saved by grace after all we have done. So we tighten our belts, we do the best we can... And then God will make up the difference by His grace. One way or another, all false religions, cults, false religions, they say Christ is not the only way. And we don't need to understand the gospel of Christ in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to be saved. But the scripture does not teach this at all. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is no other. Turn to me. Turn to the one true God and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 17, 3, And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 1 John 2, 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. From this passage, it clearly rejects Mohammedanism or Islam, and it also rejects Judaism, Orthodox Judaism that refuses to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Son of God. The Jews refuse to believe that, and the Muslims say that 
Their father, whom they call Allah, they say, that Allah does not have a son. And it would be blasphemy for them to believe that Allah would have a son. But here, it's blasphemy to deny that the father has a son. The Bible says it in the very opposite way. And if we don't understand the Son of God, Christ Himself properly, we don't belong to God. We don't have God, He says. We do not have the Father. And it also entails believing in the true gospel. Believing in the true gospel. It's not enough to say there's salvation and no one else. That there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But we have to understand what Jesus accomplished. Not only his identity, but also his ministry. And what was his ministry? 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians the first time, and what he repeats here, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ according to the Old Testament Scriptures. He's saying that it has always been proclaimed this way. It has always been truly believed this way, unless you believe in vain. It has always been one gospel from the Old Testament and into the New Testament. One gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Even Abraham. Galatians 3, 6. Galatians 3, 6. Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. We are blessed with Abraham the believer who believed the gospel. He uh, uh, believed the gospel that was preached to him, verse 8 says. The gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Abraham believed. There's only one way, Jew or Gentile. Acts 20, 21. Testifying to both Jew and Gentile of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of sin and believe in Christ, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, whether in the Old Testament or whether in the New Testament. One way, in Christ. And lastly is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. The glory of God. The glory of God is the supreme reason. It is the highest priority it is the ultimate goal that God has in the creation of the world. He created the world, and our existence is here because of the glory of God. The problem that we face in our modern times is that people have subverted the glory of God, undermined it with the love of God toward man. They say that God's love towards people, God's love towards all individuals, every person who ever lives, and especially since the incarnation of Christ until the end of the world, or the incarnation of Christ until the rapture of the church, they say the love of God or the grace of God towards every individual is front and center in the mind of God and in the preaching of the gospel. That's what they say. No, the Bible does not permit us to undermine the pursuit of the glory of God as front and center with the love of God towards man. No. We cannot do so. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So then whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Let at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Not so that we can be manifesting and displaying how much God loves us for all eternity, which is a factor, but it's not the primary factor. This is why, after explaining salvation, he brings it back to glory. Romans 11.33. Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him, that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul goes back to glory. Let's show this in the preaching of the gospel. The Bible actually says that when the gospel is preached, that though redemption is in mind, also condemnation is in mind, in the mind of God, and should be on our minds. But ultimately, the front and center issue is the glory of God. Let's see a few examples of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14. 2.14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in His triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things. For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul preaches the true gospel. He doesn't peddle it. And when he does, he thanks God. Notice that in verse 14. But thanks be to God. That's giving glory to God. He's thanking and praising God. Thereby he's glorifying God. Why? Because this aroma of Christ is, it says in verse 15, to those, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, it's an aroma from death to death, and to the other, an aroma from life to life. The wicked people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, when they hear about Christ, it's a stench to them. They hate it. It stinks. And they think it stinks, and it stinks, and it stinks, from death to death. But when we who have life hear it, it's an aroma from life to life. We long to hear it. We want to hear it. It's fragrant to us. There's two consequences. But all, in all this, the two consequences, whether it's redemption and life or whether it's condemnation and perishing, we thank God. Paul the Apostle thanked God. He said in verse 14, But thanks be to God for this. The same in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. He describes us, we who have believed. We have believed in Jesus, and Jesus was not a stumbling stone for us, but he is a stumbling stone to others. We pick it up in verse 7. 1 Peter 2, 7. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What do we do when we hear and know of our redemption? We proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. When we proclaim His excellencies, we're honoring Him. We're glorifying Him. We're praising and thanking Him. And we're doing so in front of other people. This has two results. The preaching of Christ, some believers and some disbelievers, in all these things, we proclaim the excellencies of God. In Malachi chapter 1, after describing the punishment of Edom, the punishment and condemnation of Edom, which is an everlasting punishment, Malachi 1, 1 to 5, he says to the believers, and your eyes will see this, and you will say, May the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. 
May the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. This is similar to the fourfold hallelujah declaration in Revelation 19.1-8. After Babylon the Great, Revelation 19.1-8, after Babylon the Great is destroyed, what happens? The multitude in heaven which no one could count, they shout fourfold hallelujah to God because God has condemned the wicked and he has redeemed them. He has condemned them and redeemed the righteous. This is what God does and they celebrate. They actually say, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. His judgments are true and righteous. And then they say, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. In redemption and in condemnation, they give the glory to God. Let's focus on the glory of God ourselves. And let's recover all of these truths. Recover them, understand them, believe them wholeheartedly, and be able to explain them to others. Because this is how we properly preach the gospel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.